Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? It's just funny. However many times you turn it on, it's so easy to forget. Great to see you all this morning. If you're visiting, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad that you chose to join us today. We're in the middle of a series, third week of a series called Everyday Spirituality. Uh, but one of the things that I get to do that's fun is, is I get to think a little bit like further down the road, ask questions about where we're going, and I get to do that with a bunch of, uh, of teams that just bring so much thought and energy to that. As Teresa said, we have this wonderful mission statement on our wall. It's living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus, something every church, every group of followers of Jesus is called to do. And then what we get to do is we get to ask, how do we live that out in the area God has called us? Right now in this season, he put us in this wonderful city called Littleton, and we get to ask, how do we become the church of Jesus for this city and for the world around it? And so as we process some of that over the next few months, one of the things I'm excited about is just to spend a few different weeks in a few different series just asking some of those questions. After this series, we'll get to pause and we'll get to talk through this idea of, of crisis. We, we get to look at the world around us. Now, now, for some of you, you may say the world is exactly as it should be. I love it. I think everything is awesome all of the time. And good news. If you're in that place, great. If you're not, if you have questions, maybe some suggestions for the world in terms of how it might change, we get to wrestle with, well, what is that unspoken struggle, that unspoken problem. As followers of Jesus, it's easy to just say the answer is Jesus. And, and yes, that may be wonderfully true, but there may also be other ways we might describe some of the ways the world operates. And then we get to ask this wonderful question. Does the church still matter in the world? Are we helping with the problem? Uh, what, what are we called to do to be involved in a particular way? And then for eight weeks after that, what I'd love us to do is case study that problem. We're going to open this text first, Corinthians. It's like letter one. It's the first time Paul, this great New Testament character, writes to a church and says, this is how you live in a world that you don't understand. They lived in this town, Corinth, that was just a hub of Hebrew culture, Jewish, uh, Hebrew culture, Greek culture, Roman culture. And somehow they had to figure out, how do we become the people Jesus has called us to be here? And as we wrap that up, we're going to move into just a space of saying, well, this is how we feel in this season. We are called to operate here right now in Littleton. And then the beauty of that is we all get to row together and say, God, what are you going to use us for? I've just had the privilege of dropping in on some phone calls with some friends all over the world and just hearing some stories about what God is doing in different areas is just so joyful. And, and we want to be that people to and participate in those wonderful stories. But that isn't today. Today we get to continue to make this journey through everyday spirituality. I, I don't know if you are like me. I don't know if you have moments where you set aside some time to be intentional with your spirituality, intentional with your journey with Jesus. Maybe you've spent some time in the morning engaging with Scripture. Maybe you've spent some time in intentional prayer. And then there's maybe chunks of the day 
where all of that seems to have been for no reason because in a moment you seem to lose every bit of spiritual growth you gain during that short time you put aside. You, you spend some time praying, you end up yelling at your husband or, or wife. You spend some time reading, you shake your fist angrily at the driver that pulls out in front of you. There's ways that we engage with spirituality and ways that we say, did that even work? Did that even matter? How am I supposed to become the person that Jesus designed me to become? The way I would phrase this question is, how do you take next steps on your journey when life is busy? When the other stuff seems to take up so much of our time, we have to live in that place. We have to operate in that world. And sometimes our spiritual moments don't seem to provide the the power we need to do that well. For whatever reason, this image of a journey is the number one image or metaphor that the New Testament landed on for what it was to walk with Jesus. They weren't called Christians originally. They were simply called the way. There was this idea of a journey that was there from the beginning. People talked regularly about what it was to journey with Jesus. And and we are doing that, but how do we progress? How do we take next steps when life is busy? Paul, this New Testament writer, has this beautiful dream of what it is to live out the way of Jesus. He says this to the Romans in the message version. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. I don't know about you, but that sounds more than just a five-minute-in-the-morning endeavor. That sounds like he wants it to encompass every part of me. Here's something I I think is wonderfully true. There is a gift that you can give to this community. There is a gift you can give to your family, to your spouse, to your kids, to your grandkids, to the people around you, whoever you encounter. And regardless of what you do at South as a volunteer, regardless of what you give financially, regardless of how you serve, regardless of what your role is, this thing, this gift is the same for every single one of us. The best gift you and I can give to the people around us is the person that Jesus is transforming us into. That is the single best gift. The greatest gift you can give to those around you is the person into which Jesus is transforming you. And his invitation is to partner with him in becoming that person in everyday life. And yet, as I said, it's complicated. A couple of other thinkers, writers, speakers on this subject. This is Tish Warren Harrison, who we've tapped into her a couple of times. She's becoming a good friend. The church is called to be a radically alternative people, marked by the love of the triune God in each area of life. But often, we are not sure how to become this alternative people. Ken Shigematsu says this, what if there was a way to experience God as your deep center? Not only in your formal prayers and Bible reading, but in the midst of your studies, work, exercise, and play? What if there was a way to enjoy God as you move about your day? Doesn't that seem like a beautifully gentle invitation into what life in Jesus might look like? And so during this season, we've looked at a couple of little things that may allow us to do that. First week was very simple. It was this, take a walk. Use that space to be contemplative. Use that space to engage with God, the God of the universe who loves you in conversation. Use that space to get away from everything else that you wrestle with 
Last week, we talked about travel somewhere on purpose. We, we get to make these journeys, and sometimes they're difficult, sometimes they're arduous, sometimes they come with all sorts of problems, and yet somewhere a journey reflects well what it is to live in relationship with Jesus. And in those hardships, we get to reflect on God's goodness with us. We get to take an ordinary, everyday thing and, and use it to grow spiritually. And third, we have this one. And I feel like it's going to be deeply unpopular with some of you. And that's okay. I don't need to be liked by everyone all the time. Um, choose one day to start with a fast and end with a feast. Today, we get to look at what Jesus has to say about this idea of fasting, and we get to wrestle with whether that is still for us today. Before we get into that, we're going to start with a passage in Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus touches on this subject. But before I get there, let me just say this. Our relationship with food today is complicated for so many different reasons. It's complicated because food has a way of just starting or causing arguments to just grow and expand. For example, America's number one food is pizza. Having lived in New York City for a while, this is New York pizza, and it is the only correct pizza that you can eat. If you eat Chicago pizza, you are doing pizza wrong. Um, and, and that isn't pizza. But, but it is a motive because I can say something like, does pineapple belong on pizza? And instantly, we can split the room with different passions. There's some people that nearly left the room. They're like, no, if you're going to bring me pineapple on pizza, I'm, I'm done with this church. I've got to go find somewhere else to worship. It's an emotive subject that grabs hold of us very quickly. Uh, and, and, and it's a controversial subject because many of us may struggle with eating disorders. We may wrestle with our relationship with food. And as soon as I say something like skip a meal or take a day off eating, that raises a whole bunch of questions for you internally about your identity. And so I recognize some of those tensions. Just a few little quotes around food or thoughts around food. Over 10 billion donuts are consumed in the United States every year, many of them at South Fellowship Church on a Sunday morning, it seems. 20% of all American meals are eaten in the car. Americans spend 10% of their disposable income on fast food every year. And how about this one? 89.5% of U.S. households were food secure throughout 2020. That sounds like a lot until you realize that means 10% weren't food secure. 38 million people weren't sure if they would have enough food to eat in America in the 21st century. Food and our relationship to it is complicated, and yet there is something about it that one is common. Everybody does it. If I ask you in 10 years, what will you do in 10 years on this day into the future? Well, one thing you can tell me is I almost certainly eat some food. And there is something about a great meal that captivates our imagination. The writer and restauranteur Danny Meyer talks about how he remembers going to a restaurant with his father growing up and how his father would give him his first taste of drinking wine even though he was too young and they would share this food together. And it was the one place they would have conversation. But what he remembers most distinctly was the hospitality and welcome he received and how this restauranteur, in his words, made his father feel like the king king that he longed to be. Made his father feel like the king that he longed to be. So food is, again, complicated when we talk about that. It's nuanced, but I think Jesus wants it 
to be a little complicated and nuanced for us. We're going to jump into this passage in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 to 15. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. Then they will fast. Let's pray. Jesus, as we engage with an emotional subject, and perhaps a subject that we just don't want any part of, perhaps we're quite honestly saying, I like my food fast, but I don't like to fast from my food. Wherever we are in this conversation, use it to shape us in your way. Help us to learn to do that with your heart, in your name. Amen. Yes, this, this is Jesus sort of foray into the conversation around fasting. And perhaps fascinatingly, he takes fasting and feasting and he ties them together. He takes fasting and feasting and he ties them together. Somewhere in this conversation, Jesus suggests, you as my follower will both fast and feast. It's interesting, he doesn't say they may fast. He talks about it as a certainty. He talks about it with the suggestion that if you and I aren't engaging in these practices, then maybe somewhere, maybe we're actually missing out on what it is to follow Jesus. And I don't know about you, I am not good at designing my own life. That's why I follow Jesus. Amongst his death and his resurrection and his work in me, I follow Jesus because he gives me a framework of how to live. He is much smarter than I am. So when Jesus says, my followers will fast, I'm intrigued because I don't do this very much, if I'm honest. And so now I have a bunch of questions about what it is to fast and feast as I follow Jesus. And as I contemplated this, as I thought about it, I realized this fast and feast thing, I did that accidentally just the other day. I did it accidentally just the other day. I have this rhythm that I love to my morning. I I love ideally to get up before anybody else in the house. And just find a little bit of space to sit on the porch in the summer or to sit in my favorite chair and just read and contemplate, spend a few moments praying. And then I love just hearing the pitter-patter of footsteps as they come down the stairs and each one of them will want breakfast. And then about seven o'clock, I love to be able to go for a walk and just spend some time collecting my thoughts, sharing them with Jesus and asking him what he thinks about all of those different things. That's a beautiful rhythm. But sometimes it catches me off guard. Everything goes a bit slower than it should. And I find myself just dashing off and a little bit rushed by the time it's time to get off to work, to a meeting or something like that. And so the other day I dashed off and kind of missed breakfast altogether. I fasted, but not on purpose. In actual fact, when I realized I hadn't eaten, I was just a little bit grumpy about it, even though I tried my best to to not let anybody know I was a little bit grumpy about it. And then during the course of the day, we had a a family thing come up. Jude was not feeling well, and the babysitter was struggling to to handle him. So I went to grab him. Laura was busy with a birth client. And so I went to grab him and my daughters, and, and I took them home. But they were all hungry and grumpy too. So I did what many of you who have kids may have done at some point. I went to that outpost of heaven that makes everything better. I went to this place. I went and I gathered milkshakes, I gathered chicken sandwich and waffle fries and all of those different things. And I went in, if I'm honest, with one premise. Nobody is going to come away from this saying they are still hungry. 
There is going to be lots of food for everybody. And most importantly, there's going to be a peach milkshake for me because it's summer and I, I, just, I just wanted one. So I went home and I dumped the food on the table and I said, there we go. You've all got enough to eat. And I took my peach milkshake and my chicken sandwich and I kind of just sloped off to try and recover something of my day. I fasted and I feasted and it did nothing for me. I fasted and I feasted, and in the process, I didn't grow closer to Jesus. I didn't experience him. I didn't become better at following him in the world. In fact, I did all of that badly. Somewhere, Jesus invites us into fasting and to feasting, but I would suggest right off the top, you can do that in the worst way. You can do that exactly as I did it. And what we get to do is look at this passage and say, Jesus, how did you and why did you do these things? And when we enter in, what should we expect from it? How should it change us? How should it grow us? How should it challenge us? We can say from the beginning this, Jesus regularly entered into the discipline of fasting. It's called a discipline because it's hard to do and you don't really want to do it. But when you do it, it's actually good for you. And Jesus did this regularly and often. In actual fact, before he did anything publicly, before any ministry took off, almost all of these writers of the Gospels agreed Jesus went out into this place called the wilderness. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. It's interesting, medically, some people say 40 days is about the most you can fast without permanently damaging your body. Once you get past that point, it's hard for your body to heal itself. But Jesus goes into this intentionally doing what? Intentionally looking, it seems, for this, well, intentionally the Spirit is calling him into this space to engage somewhere with God and then to go through this process of challenging and refining. Jesus goes into this space and the first challenge is, Jesus, you're hungry. I love the way the text almost states that, almost as if we should be surprised. He had four, fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and after that, he was hungry. Seems like it could go without saying, right? That seems like a long period to not eat for. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Take the simple path out. Haven't you done this long enough? It's time to eat now. Take the easy option. Do what you'll do multiple times in your public ministry. Take things that aren't there and make them so that they are there. Just cut the corners. And Jesus' response is fascinating. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Just on the surface, we might say Jesus' understanding of fasting is that somewhere we can be tempted to rely on just bread. And yet there's other things like more or less elemental things that maybe are just or more important for us. We don't just need sustenance. We don't just need bread, water, sleep, and shelter. There's something that God provides that we still need, even when we don't recognize it. On the surface, we could just draw that wonderful conclusion, but there's something else going on here, because Jesus didn't create this sentence. He didn't create this passage. He drew it from somewhere else. And when we go and look back at where he drew it from... I would suggest we learn just a little bit more about fasting too. He drew this from a book called Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is Moses, the famous prophet of Israel speaking. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. 
Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Somewhere in this ancient conversation, there is this idea in terms of our relationship with food that we have a tendency to believe we supply everything that we need. We forget the God of the universe very easily. We assume it's by our genius, our skill, that we have amassed the things that are around us, whether it's food or other possessions. That's our tendency. And somewhere, this process in the wilderness was designed to make sure that they didn't forget. Remember when we started this series, we started with this quote from Augustine, late have I loved you, O beauty ever, ancient ever new, late have I loved you, created things kept me from you. It seems like both Moses and Jesus would say food can be one of those things. The everyday sustenance, the everyday things we eat, we can get to a point where we think that's all that matters, and we can get to a point where we think we did that for ourselves. We eat to forget sometimes, and we forget when we eat. When I say we eat to forget, I mean that sometimes we cover up our issues with eating. We realize that we can self-medicate through the way we eat. And when we have so much, we forget that we actually deeply need the God of the universe who provides for us. The first thing it seems that we can say about fasting is this. We might say that fasting fights forgetfulness. Just that moment of not having everything we want in a given moment, somewhere, it has a way of reminding us that food isn't all we need, and we are completely incapable of providing for ourselves. Even when we think we are wonderfully skilled at doing so, we desperately need the God of the universe who made that possible for us. Jesus regularly entered into this process of fasting, and we'll say a little bit more about why he may have asked us to do that. But he seems like he intentionally entered into this rhythm of feasting as well. In actual fact, in society around him, Jesus was known as a feaster. He entered into the discipline of feasting just as much as fasting. The passage we began with in Matthew chapter 9 says, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So some background to this. John, when it mentions John, is, is John known as the Baptist? He gathered a group of followers. They were known for being particularly ascetic. They, they liked to discipline hard. They liked to make sure that they did things strictly and by the book. And then this other group, the Pharisees, had a reputation for that as well. Their idea was get everyone to live by the law and then God will do something in the world around us. But these two groups hated each other. So when John's disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we fast and the Pharisees fast, what are they saying? They're saying this, Jesus, even the guys we don't like fast. Even the bad guys fast. Even the guys that we think are doing it all wrong, they fast. Even the guys that are like the enemy, they fast. Why aren't you guys doing this? 
what is wrong with you? What is wrong with your way of teaching? Why aren't your disciples entering into this practice? Why aren't they doing the hard thing? All we see them do is feasting. What about the fasting? We see them with the joy moments. What about the difficult moments that we're all entering into? Everyone's doing this. In actual fact, outside of Judaism, when you look back at almost every religion on the planet, almost every religion engages somewhere in something like fasting. It's not by any means a unique Jewish or Christian tradition. Religious people fast. And in this case, John's disciples are essentially saying, Jesus, everybody's doing this. Why aren't you and your followers doing it too? And Jesus' answer is fascinating. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. Jesus says, there'll come a time where I won't be here. There will come a time when my disciples will become known for fasting, and the earliest Christians were particularly known for fasting. Jewish people fasted on Tuesday and Thursday. They picked Monday and Wednesday, but they regularly and often, they fasted. They participated in that practice. And they regularly and often feasted too. These first followers of Jesus were known for what was called the agape feast, the love feast, where they would gather together as a community and there would be food to share and they would joyfully enter into celebrating God's presence amongst them in their feasts. They became these people. And it seems like it begins here where Jesus teaches that his followers will engage in what I would call a spiritual couplet, two things that kind of go together, sometimes even when they seem odd, a fasting and feasting, they would repeatedly enter into this thing. In actual fact, this accusation that Jesus is a regular feaster began because of who he was welcoming in. In the story before the one we just read, it's the story where Matthew, this follower of Jesus who wrote the book we're engaging with, he became a follower of Jesus and he did the only thing he knew what to do. To celebrate this new life he'd experienced, he said, I'm going to throw a party, and there was Jesus with them front and center. From the earliest moment, Jesus engaged in both fasting and feasting, and he said that we would do the same. Said that we would do the same. That suggests to me a couple of questions. One, as I said before, I don't regularly engage in fasting. I've certainly never done a 40-day fast. And so I start to ask questions of what am I missing out on when I'm not doing this? And I'm not sure that I regularly feast either. And we'll get to a little bit more of that as we get towards the end of the message. I would suggest that when Jesus talks about this rhythm, he does it for a couple of reasons. I would suggest fasting in the Old Testament speaks of absence and longs for presence. Now, before we get too far down that road, there's there's plenty of reasons that the Old Testament addresses fasting. One of it is for repentance. It's a sorrowful thing. But Jesus really seems to move away from that idea. He seems to engage with the idea that no forgiveness comes simply because I give it and you have asked for it and my work makes that possible. He doesn't really, it seemed to me, talk about repentance as something that you do through fasting. That's my opinion there. But regularly, this Old Testament talks about fasting as a way of engaging with those moments where it just seems like God is absent from the world, where you desperately long for more of him. You long for him to become more visible. Have a look at this passage in Isaiah 58. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves 
and you have not noticed. The heartbeat of this passage is, God, we came to you looking and longing for presence. We came to you because you're not here in the way that we need you to be here. And you haven't met us. You haven't answered. And it seems as the passage evolves that God has some questions about just how they fasted, some concerns that they may have stopped eating as I did for a day, but have, have missed a load of the other points of fasting. He goes on to say this, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood, then you will find your joy in the Lord and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast, to feast, to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Somewhere in this Old Testament, there is lurking this idea that when people fasted, it was out of longing that God may make his presence known. And when they feasted, it was a celebration that his presence was known. Feasting, if fasting speaks of absence, feasting speaks of presence and rejoices that absence is over. But when Jesus gives this spiritual couplet, this idea that we will both be people that feast and fast, doesn't that make the question of absence and presence complicated? Because when Jesus says this, he is present, and so they feast. And he says, one day will come a day when they won't be present, when I won't be present, when I'll be absent, and then they will fast. The tension the church had to embrace is, is he really absent? Yes, he's no longer with us physically. Yes, we now engage with this practice of fasting as he said we would. But is he really gone? Perhaps that's the reason that the first church engaged this tension of feasting and fasting over and over again in this beautiful rhythm. They both recognized somewhere that Jesus had been present and was now absent. And they recognized the idea that one day he would be coming again and be joyfully present in a particular way. But they also knew that really the promise of this spirit was that he would be present always always present in the midst of this church they they wrestle with the tension that we call already not yet one of the places you and I live as followers of Jesus in the 21st century is this we live in this place that Jesus has done everything that is needed his work is finished it is done you are beautifully and wonderfully rescued and redeemed and yet throughout these New Testament writings, the writers live in this tension of, you are, but not yet. We're still waiting. There's still more to come. Surely we don't stop here. Surely this isn't the end of the story. Surely this isn't complete. All of those things we talked about that we might sketch out in the next series, all of those things that we struggle to put our fingers on, that's not the way it's supposed to stay, is it? These New Testament writers live over and over again in this tension. And Jesus pictures this idea of a marriage feast. Can, can you go to a wedding feast and not celebrate? But what happens when the groom departs? What happens when you say goodbye to the couple as they go off on their honeymoon? Then isn't there some mourning? Doesn't the party end? Isn't there a lack of presence in that moment? Somewhere Jesus wrestles with this tension of what his presence means for his followers, what his absence will mean, and what the promise that one day he will come again will mean for them then. Jesus teaches his followers will engage in a spiritual couplet of fasting and feasting that reflects the idea of already, 
not yet. It's really present in this passage in Hebrews. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's already, it's done, but it's also not yet. Oscar Coleman says, already not yet is the silent preposition that lies behind all that the New Testament says. Every time you pick, open that Bible, you read a letter from Paul, you read one of the other letters, it has at its heartbeat this idea of Jesus has done everything, but we're still waiting. It's all finished, but we don't see it yet. When we enter into fasting and feasting as a rhythm, we're somewhere we engage with that idea. Somewhere we recognize he's both present and we long for more presence. So if we're supposed to do this, if this is something Jesus presents as not, if they do it, or maybe they'll do it, but when they do it, how do we do it? What, what does it look like to practically enter into fasting first? And let me just say this. If you are finding yourself in a place, if I'm finding myself in a place where I would describe myself as maybe spiritually apathetic, Maybe you would say this, maybe you would say, it's not that I don't believe in God. It's not that I don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. I've maybe got questions about the church. But if you're in a place where you'd say, if you could be really honest for just a moment, it's actually that a while ago, I just stopped caring. I just started going through the motions and I don't really know how to get out of that. If you find yourself in that place, I would suggest strongly that fasting may be the place where that starts to change, that engaging this may waken something up. How can we enter into fasting? So this is my favorite way to do this. Remove a meal or two from your day. Now let me just say, if you have an eating disorder or something like that, I recognize that that can be really troubling as an idea. Uh, And so recognize that depending on where you are physically, this will affect what I'm advising you to do. But for me, this works great. Why does it work great? Because it only affects me. It means that I get to skip breakfast. I means I get to skip lunch. And then I get to come home and I get to eat with my family. I don't get home and say, I'm going to awkwardly sit at the table and not eat anything. Or I'm not going to sit down with you at all. It means that I get to do this part. And then I get to come home and and celebrate. Now, I like to eat late in the evening, and maybe on these days, there's a moment I'm like, "Ah, I'd love it if we did dinner earlier. Is there a way that dinner could be ready at 4.30 or something like that? But this idea just gives you some space uh, to say, I'm going to choose to do this by myself as I go about my day, and then I get to engage with my family or my community in the evening. When you do that, you get to use the space to connect with God you get to find a way to enter into a practice that just takes the place of a meal. Practically, one of my favorite ways to do this is something called centering prayer. It's simply this invitation to pray that starts with a gong. It's like I'm being invited into prayer in a monastery or something like that. And in that moment, I love to just take a passage from the Bible and just look at what that passage's heartbeat is. Maybe what's the one word that stands out? Maybe the couple of things that stand out to me. So as an example that may be helpful this week, I I picked this passage in this book called Colossians that says this, you have been made alive in Christ. And he has taken the list of debts and he he has put a line through them. And he has removed them from you. And so during those 10 minutes of just sitting and not eating and and just waiting, I just got to reflect on those ideas. I have been made alive in Christ. He's canceled the list of debts. And he's even removed them from me. I've been made alive in Christ. He's canceled the list of debts. And he has removed them 
from me. I have been made alive in Christ. He has canceled the list of debts and he has removed them from me. There is something about that that may not be physical food, but there is something about that process that says something in there is getting fed even when I'm not at Chick-fil-A, as heartbreaking as that may be. Use that moment to connect with God, but also to pray for that spiritual hunger that we're talking about. In his rewriting of the Beatitudes, Eugene Peterson in the message says this, you are blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. And then when hungry, you get in those moments to reflect on God's goodness. If you've never entered into fasting before, this is just a simple pattern that just enables you to try it for the first time, to enter into a moment of saying, God, how might you use this to transform me, to do something new in me? But then the follow-up question might be, how can we enter into feasting? And I have this deep suspicion that perhaps in this place, in this country, we are terrible at feasting. We don't do it well. We do my Chick-fil-A thing. We do where we grab loads of food and we dump it on the table and we say, you're all going to have plenty to eat. But I wonder if we really understand feasting as Jesus would have understood it. And so I have some invites for you here to gather with your community. Maybe it's your biological family. Maybe it's your spouse and kids. Maybe it's your grandkids. Maybe it's your grandparents. Maybe it's the people you share a house with. Maybe it's the people that you gather in community groups with. Maybe it's the people that you do life with. But choose to intentionally gather. The original word breakfast comes from this idea of break fast. It means it can happen at any point of the day, but choose to gather to break fast with a group of people that you love and care about. Prepare slowly and intentionally. Prepare slowly and intentionally. Choose to slow down the rhythm. Choose to celebrate God's presence by lingering there. This is one of the most famous chefs in the world. Her name is Wang Quan. She is a nun in a Buddhist monastery, and she's becoming famous for just what she's doing with food. She's doing things that people never thought a person in a monastery could produce. She's just revolutionizing certain aspects of her cuisine. And I was listening to an interview with her the other day, and she said this, the most invaluable ingredient is time. The most invaluable, the most valuable ingredient is time. Now I was listening to this, not reading it. So when she said time, I had this moment of like, huh, time is a herb I would never have expected in Korean cuisine. That's a really interesting thing to be throwing in there. You've, you've thrown my expectations of what Korean food may taste like. But in actual fact, no, she talks about time because of the amount of time that goes into preparation for her. She uses soy sauces that were set down to ferment by her grandparents that have now been sitting there for 80, 100 years just developing different flavors. And there is no rush to how she prepares things. I found this list of time spent by different countries overeating and drinking. And remember when I said 20% of American meals were consumed in the car, look at some of the differences there. France, two hours, 13 minutes. Italy, two hours, seven minutes. All the way down to the United States, one hour and two minutes. We eat quickly. We eat rushed. We just get through it. I'm down this rabbit hole at the moment, just wondering what our culture says about how we engage with different spiritual practices and how we feel in terms of our rushedness. And I got thinking about how it affects every area of life. 
I just want you to look at these two things for a second. This is what a racetrack looks like in America. It's designed to just go as fast as you possibly can for as long as you can. You just go round and round in circles. You just keep the speed up as high as you possibly can. And this is what a Formula One track looks like in Europe. It's designed to meander, designed to go all over the place. And there's something about our love of speed and our love of efficiency that just is translated into the way that we eat. And while that may be fine in everyday life, it's completely different to how a Jewish culture would have understood food. And when Jesus says feast, he doesn't mean rush. He doesn't mean tip the Chick-fil-A on the table and eat as much as you can, as quickly as you can. There is a lingering and slowness to that idea that just we must understand. We are invited to do it slowly and intentionally. In those moments, we get to pray with thankfulness for the feast we have provided, to recognize, as Moses said, that you did not do this by your own strength. It was me that gave you that strength. Perhaps this again taps into our ideas of speed that often we find our prayers around meals rushed. I even meet with one group of guys and there is one person in that group that I will regularly say if we're in a rush, you're not allowed to pray because I know we'll be there longer than we can afford to be there and the meal, the food will have to wait. We, we are designed to rush thankfulness too. And yet, capture hold of some of this prayer of thankfulness from the psalm. Psalm 104, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God, you are very great. He makes the grass grow for the livestock and provides crops for man to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil that makes his face to shine, and bread that sustains his heart. It's a long cry from God bless this food to our bodies and we're done. There is something about this that recognizes that God has his hand in everything. And when we feast, we celebrate his involvement from the, the creation he has given to all of the things that come from it. Reflect on God's presence as you gather. In fasting, we get to reflect on the idea of absence and we get to long from, for presence. In feasting, we get to reflect on, on presence and the idea that the absence, the void of absence, has been filled by God's goodness and presence with us. As you fast, look for God's presence. As you feast, celebrate it. Jesus talked about fasting as a certainty, not a possibility. He said, when my followers fast. When they fast. That is what you and I are invited into as we seek to become the people that Jesus longs for us to become. Let's pray. God, for some of us, we were kind of out on fasting. And hopefully now we've shifted somewhere on that journey. Somewhere this idea of fasting is a part of our spiritual growth. Somewhere you said that your followers, they would do this. Inherently, we are people of both fast and of feast. We are people that celebrate your presence. We are people that recognize there are ways right now that you seem absence, but absent. But perhaps, perhaps it only seems that way. When we come together, or as we go our separate ways and we engage in fasting, we long, long, long for your presence. Long to be with you and engage with you. When we feast, we celebrate that you have been here, that you have walked this earth, you have done wonderful things, 
You have changed the system on which this world is based. You have instituted grace. You have created new wineskins for old wine. And we're thankful. This week, as we engage with you, give us the courage to step into fasting. Give us joy to celebrate feasting. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.